0: The following is a conversation with Melanie Mitchell. She's a professor of computer science at Portland State University and an external professor at Santa Fe Institute. She has worked on and written about artificial intelligence from fascinating perspectives, including adaptive complex systems, genetic algorithms, and the copycat cognitive architecture, which places the process of analogy making at the core of human cognition. From her doctoral work, With her advisors, Douglas Hofstadter and John Holland, to today, she has contributed a lot of important ideas to the field of AI, including her recent book, simply called Artificial Intelligence, a guide for thinking humans. This is the Artificial Intelligence Podcast. If you enjoy it, subscribe on YouTube, give it five stars on Apple Podcasts, support it on Patreon, or simply connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman, spelled F-R-I-D-M-A-N. I recently started doing ads at the end of the introduction. I'll do one or two minutes after introducing the episode and never any ads in the middle that can break the flow of the conversation. I hope that works for you and doesn't hurt the listening experience. I provide timestamps for the start of the conversation, but it helps if you listen to the ad and support this podcast by trying out the product or service being advertised. This show is presented by Cash App, the number one finance app in the App Store. I personally use Cash App to send money to friends, but you can also use it to buy, sell, and deposit Bitcoin in just seconds. Cash App also has a new investing feature. You can buy fractions of a stock, say $1 worth, no matter what the stock price is. Brokerage services are provided by Cash App Investing, a subsidiary of Square, and member SIPC. I'm excited to be working with Cash App to support one of my favorite organizations called FIRST best known for their first robotics and Lego competitions. They educate and inspire hundreds of thousands of students in over 110 countries and have a perfect rating on Charity Navigator, which means that donated money is used to maximum effectiveness. When you get Cash App from the App Store or Google Play and use code LexPodcast, you'll get $10, and Cash App will also donate $10 to FIRST which again is an organization that I've personally seen inspire girls and boys to dream of engineering a better world. And now, here's my conversation with Melanie Mitchell. The name of your new book is Artificial Intelligence, subtitle, A Guide for Thinking Humans. The name of this podcast is Artificial Intelligence. So let me take a step back and ask the old Shakespeare question about roses. And uh, what do you think of the term artificial intelligence for our big and complicated and interesting field?
1: I'm not crazy about the term. <laughs> I think it has a few problems um, because it it's means so many different things to different people. And intelligence is one of those words that isn't very clearly defined either. There's so many different kinds of intelligence, degrees of intelligence, approaches to intelligence. John McCarthy was the one who came up with the term artificial intelligence. And what, from what I read, he called it that to differentiate it from cybernetics, which was another... Related movement at the time, and he later regretted calling it artificial intelligence. Uh, Herbert Simon was pushing for calling it complex information processing, <laughs> 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 which got mixed, but, you know, probably is equally vague, I guess.
0: Is it the intelligence or the artificial in terms of words that I that's it, most problematic, would you say?
1: Yeah, I think it's a little of both. But, you know, it has some good size because I personally was attracted to the field because I was interested in phenomenon of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And if it was called complex information processing, maybe I'd be doing something wholly different now.
0: What do you think of, I've heard the term used cognitive systems, for example. So using cognitive.
1: Yeah, I mean, cognitive has certain associations with it. And people like to separate things like cognition and perception, which I don't actually think are separate, but often people talk about cognition as being different from sort of other aspects of of intelligence. Uh, It's sort of higher level. So so to you,
0: cognition is this broad, beautiful mess of things that encompasses the whole thing. Memory, perception. Yeah. I I think
1: it's hard to draw lines like that. When I was coming out of grad school in the ni- in 1990 which is when i graduated that was during one of the ai winters and i was advised to not put ai artificial intelligence on my cv but instead call it intelligent systems mm-hmm. so that was kind of an, an a euphemism i guess
0: <laughs> what about to stick briefly on uh, on terms and words the idea of artificial general intelligence or uh, or like Jan LeCun prefers human level intelligence, sort of starting to talk about ideas that that achieve higher and higher levels of intelligence, and somehow artificial intelligence seems to be a term used more for the narrow, very specific applications of AI and sort of the there's what set of terms appeal to you to describe? the thing that perhaps we strive to create?
1: People have been struggling with this for the whole history of the field and defining exactly what it is that we're talking about. You know, John Searle had this distinction between strong AI and weak AI. Mm -hmm. And weak AI could be general AI, but his his idea was strong AI was the view that a machine is actually thinking that as opposed to simulating thinking or carrying out intelligent processes that we would call intelligent.
0: At a high level, if you look at the founding of the field, McCarthy and Searle and, and so on, are we closer to having a better sense of that line between narrow, weak AI and strong AI?
1: Yes, I think we're closer to having a better idea of what that line is. Early on, for example, a lot of people thought that playing chess would be, you couldn't play chess if you didn't have sort of general human level intelligence. And of course, once computers were able to play chess better than humans, that revised that view And people said, okay, well, maybe now we have to revise what we think of intelligence as. uh, and, And so that's kind of been a theme throughout the history of the field is that once a machine can do some task, we then have to look back and say, oh, well, that changes my understanding of what intelligence is because I don't think that machine is intelligent. At least that's not what I want to call intelligence.
0: Do you think that line moves forever, or will we eventually really feel as a civilization like we crossed the line if it's possible?
1: It's hard to predict, but I I don't see any reason why we couldn't, in principle, create something that we would consider intelligent. I don't know how we will know for sure. Maybe our own view of what intelligence is will be refined more and more until we finally figure out what we mean when we talk about it. But I, I think eventually we will create machines, in a sense, that have intelligence. They may not be the kinds of machines we have now. And one of the things that that's going to produce is, is making us sort of understand our own machine-like qualities that we in a sense are mechanical in the sense that like n- cells cells are kind of mechanical they pro- they have algorithms they process information by and somehow out of this mass of cells we get this emergent property that we call intelligence but underlying it is uh, really just cellular processing and and lots and lots and lots of it.
0: Do you think we'll be able to, do you think it's possible to create intelligence without understanding our own mind? You said sort of in that process we'll understand more and more, but do you think it's possible to sort of create without really fully understanding from a mechanistic perspective, sort of from a functional perspective, how our mysterious mind works?
1: If I had to bet on it, I would say, no, we, we, we do have to understand our own minds, at least to some significant extent. But it, it, I, th- I think that's a really big open question. I've been very surprised at how far kind of brute force approaches based on, say, big data and huge networks can, can take us. I wouldn't have expected that. Mm-hmm. And they have nothing to do with the way our minds work. So that's been surprising to me, so it could be wrong.
0: To explore the psychological and the philosophical, do you think we're okay as a species with uh, something that's more intelligent than us? Do you think perhaps the the reason we're pushing that line further and further is we're afraid of acknowledging that there's something stronger, better, smarter than us humans?
1: Well, I'm not sure we can define intelligence that way because you know, smarter than is with, with respect to what, what, you know, uh, computers are already smarter than us in some areas. They can multiply much better than we can. They, they can figure out driving routes to take much faster and better than we can. They have a lot more information to draw on. They know about, you know, traffic conditions and all that stuff. So for any given particular task, Sometimes computers are much better than we are. And we're totally happy with that. Right. I'm right. totally happy with that. I don't it doesn't bother me at all. I guess the question is, you know, what which things about our intelligence would we feel very sad or, or upset that machines ha- had been yes. able to recreate. Yeah. So in the book, I talk about my former PhD advisor, Douglas Hofstadter, who encountered a music generation program, and that was really the line for him, Hmm. that if a machine could create beautiful music, that would be terrifying for him, because that is something he feels is really at the core of what it is to be human, creating beautiful music, art, literature. I, you know, I don't think, he doesn't like the fact that machines can recognize spoken language really well like he doesn't he personally doesn't like using speech recognition mm-hmm. but I don't think it bothers him to his core because it's like okay that's not at the core of humanity but it may be different for every person what what really they feel w- would ur- usurp their humanity <laughs> And I think maybe it's a generational thing also. Maybe our children or our children's children will be adapted. They'll they'll adapt to these new devices that can do all these tasks and and say, yes, this thing is smarter than me in all these areas, but uh, that's great because it helps me. (laughs)
0: Looking at the broad history of our species, why do you think so many humans have dreamed of creating artificial life and artificial intelligence throughout the history of our civilization? So not just this century or the 20th century, but really many throughout many centuries that preceded it.
1: That's a really good question. And I have wondered about that because I, I myself, you know, was driven by curiosity about my own thought processes and thought, It would be fantastic to be able to get a computer to mimic some of my thought processes. and I'm not sure why we're so driven. I think we want to understand ourselves better, and we also want machines to do things for us but i don't know there's something more to it because it's so deep in in the kind of mythology or the ethos of our our species and i don't think other species have this drive <laughs> so i don't know
0: if you were to sort of psychoanalyze yourself in your in your own interest in ai are you what excites you about creating intelligence you said understanding our own selves
1: yeah i think that's what drives me particularly I'm really interested in human intelligence, but I'm all I'm also interested in the sort of the phenomenon of intelligence more generally. And I don't think humans are the only thing with intelligence, you know, I, and, and, or even animals. But I think intelligence is a concept that encompasses a lot of complex systems. And if you think of things like uh, insect colonies or uh, cellular processes or the immune system or all kinds of different biological or even societal processes have as an emergent property some aspects of what we would call intelligence. You know, they have memory, they process information, they have goals, they accomplish their goals, et cetera. And, And to me, that the question of what is this thing we're, we're talking about here was uh, really fascinating to me. And, and exploring it using computers seemed to be a good way to approach the question.
0: So do you think kind of of intelligence, do you think of the, our universe as a kind of hierarchy of complex systems and then intelligence is just the property of any, you, you can look at any level and every level has some uh, aspect of intelligence. So we're just like one little speck in that giant hierarchy of complex systems.
1: I don't know if I would say any system like that has intelligence, but I guess I what I want to, I don't have a good enough definition of intelligence to say that. So
0: let me, let me do sort of a uh, multiple choice, I guess. So, uh, so you said ant colonies. So are ant colonies intelligent? Are, the bacteria in our body in, in, intelligent and then look, going to the f- the physics world molecules and the, the behavior at the quantum level of of electrons and so on is are those kinds of systems do they possess intelligence like where's where's the line that um, feels compelling to you
1: i don't know i mean i think intelligence is a continuum and i think that the ability to in some sense, have intention, have a goal, have have a some kind of self awareness is part of it. So I'm not sure if you know. It's hard to know where to draw that line. I think that's kind of a mystery. But I wouldn't say that. Say that you know this. The planets orbiting the sun are is an intelligent system. I mean, I would find that that maybe not the right term to describe that and this is you know there's all this debate in the field of like what's what's the right way to define intelligence what's the right way to model intelligence should we think about computation should we think about dynamics and um, should we think about you know free energy and all of that stuff and I think that it's it's a fantastic time to be in the field because there's so many questions and so much we don't understand there's so much work to do
0: so are we, are we the most special kind of intelligence in this kind of? You said there's uh, a bunch of different elements and characteristics of intelligence systems and colonies. Uh, it, are is human intelligence the thing in our brain? Is that the most interesting kind of intelligence in this continuum?
1: Well, it's interesting to us because. Because it it is us, (laughs) I mean, interesting to me, yes, and because I'm part of the you know human.
0: But to understanding the fundamentals of intelligence, what I'm getting at, do we is studying the human is sort of if everything we've talked about, what you talk about in your book, what uh, just the AI field, this notion, yes, it's hard to define, but it's usually talking about something that's very akin to human intelligence.
1: Yeah. To me, it is the most interesting because it's the most complex, I think. It's the most self-aware. It's the only system, at least that I know of, that reflects on its own intelligence.
0: And you talk about the history of AI and us in terms of uh, creating artificial intelligence, being terrible at predicting the future with AI or with tech in general. So why do you think we're so bad at predicting the future? Are we hopelessly bad? So no matter what, whether it's this decade or the next few decades, every time we make a prediction, there's just no way of doing it well? Or as the field matures, we'll be better and better at it?
1: I believe as the field matures, we will be better. And I think the reason that we've had so much trouble is that we have so little understanding of our own intelligence. Hmm. So there's the famous story about Marvin Minsky assigning computer vision as a summer project yeah. to his undergrad students. And I believe that's actually a true story.
0: Yeah, no, there's a, <laughs> there's a, there's a write-up on it that everyone should read. It's like a, I think it's like a proposal that describes everything that should, should yeah. be done in that project. It's hilarious because it, uh, I mean, you could explain it, but from my sort of recollection, it describes basically all the fundamental problems of computer vision, many of which that still haven't been solved.
1: Yeah, and and... and- I don't know how far they really expected to get, right. but I think that and and they're really you know Marvin Minsky is a super smart guy and very sophisticated thinker, but I think that no one really understands or understood still doesn't understand how complicated how complex the things that we do are because they're so invisible to us you know to us vision. able to look out at the world and describe what we see, that's just immediate. It feels like it's no work at all. So it didn't seem like it would be that hard. But there's so much going on unconsciously, sort of invisible to us, that I think we overestimate how easy it will be to get computers to do it.
0: And sort of, uh, for me to ask an unfair question you've done uh, research, you've thought about many different branches of AI through this book, uh, widespread looking at where AI has been, where it is today. If you were to make a prediction, how many years from now would we as a society create something that you would say achieved human level intelligence or superhuman level intelligence?
1: That is an unfair question, <laughs>
0: a prediction that will most likely be wrong, so, but it's just your notion because
1: okay, i'll say I'll say more than a hundred years more than a hundred years, and there I quoted somebody in my book who said that human level intelligence is a hundred Nobel prizes away, <laughs> which I oh, like because it's God. a it's a nice way to to sort of it's a nice unit for prediction, <laughs> and it's like that many. Fantastic discoveries have to be made, and of course, there's no Nobel Prize in AI, All right. <laughs> not yet at least.
0: If we look at that hundred years, your sense is really the journey to intelligence has to go through something uh, something more complicated. That's akin to our own cognitive systems, uh, understanding them, being able to create them in in the artificial systems as opposed to sort of taking the machine learning approaches of today and really scaling them and scaling them and scaling them exponentially with both compute and hardware and, and uh, data.
1: That would be my, that would be my guess. Um, You know, I think that in, in the, the, the sort of going along in the narrow AI that these, Current the, the current approaches will get better. You know, I think there's some fundamental limits to how far they're going to get. I might be wrong, but that's what I think. Uh, but and there's some fundamental weaknesses that they have that um, I talk about in the book that that just comes from this approach of of supervised learning um, requ- requiring. Sort of feed forward networks, Hmm. and so on. Uh, It it it's just I don't think it's a sustainable approach to understanding the world.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm personally torn on it. Sort of, I've everything you write about in the book, and sort of we're talking about now. I I agree, I agree with you, but I'm more and more, depending on the day. First of all, I'm deeply surprised by the success of machine learning and deep learning in general. From the very beginning, when I was, it's really been my main focus of work. I'm just surprised how far it gets. And I'm also, think we're really early on in these efforts of these narrow AI. So I think there'll be a lot of surprises of how far it gets. I, I think we'll be extremely impressed like in my sense is everything I've seen so far, and we'll talk about autonomous driving and so on, I think we can get really far. But I also have a sense that what we will discover, just like you said, is that even though we'll get really far, in order to create something like our own intelligence is actually much farther than we realize. Right. I think these methods are a lot more powerful than people give them credit for actually. So then of course there's the media hype, but I think there's a lot of researchers in the community, especially like not undergrads, right? But like people who've been in AI, they're skeptical about how far deep learning can get. And I'm more and more thinking that it can actually get farther than we realize.
1: It's certainly possible. One thing that surprised me when I was writing the book is how far apart different people are in the in the field yeah, are on their opinion of how how far the field has come and what is accomplished and what's what's going to happen next.
0: What's your sense of the different who are the different people, groups, mindsets, thoughts uh, in the community about where AI is today?
1: Yeah, they're all over the place. so so <laughs> there's there's kind of the the singularity transhumanism group—I don't know exactly how to characterize that approach. Which like is a, well, yeah, the, the sort of exponential of exponential progress. We're, we're we're on the sort of almost at the the hugely accelerating part of the exponential, and by in the next thirty years, we're going to see super intelligent AI and all that, and we'll be able to upload our brains and that so there there's that kind of extreme view that most i think most people who work in ai don't have mm. they disagree with that but there are people who who are maybe don't aren't you know singularity people but but they're they do think that the current approach of deep learning is going to scale and is going to kind of go all the way basically mm. and take us to true ai or human level ai or whatever you want to call it uh and there's quite a few of them and a lot of them like a lot of the people i met who work at um big tech companies in in ai groups kind of have this view that we're really not that far you know
0: just to linger on that point sort of if if I can take as an example, like Jan LeCun, I don't know if you know about his work and so his viewpoints yeah, on this. I do. He believes that there's a bunch of breakthroughs, like fundamental, like Nobel prizes. There's yeah. needed still, right? But I think he thinks those breakthroughs will be built on top of deep learning, right? And then there's some people who think we need to kind of put deep learning to the side a little bit as just one module that's helpful in the bigger right. cognitive framework.
1: Right. So 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 I think, uh, from what I understand, Jan LeCun is rightly saying supervised learning is not sustainable. We have to figure out how to do unsupervised learning, that that's going to be the key. Um, and, you know, I think that's probably true. Uh, I think unsupervised learning is going to be harder than people think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the way that we humans do it. Then there's the opposing view, you know. The, there's a, the the Gary Marcus kind of hybrid view where where deep learning is one part, but we need to bring back kind of these symbolic mm-hmm. approaches and combine them. Of course, no one knows how to do that very well.
0: Which is the more important part, right? To to emphasize and how do they yeah how do they fit together? What's what's the foundation? What's the thing that's on top? What's yeah. the cake? What's the icing?
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> then there's people pushing different different things. There, there's the people, the causality people who say, you know, deep learning, as it's formulated today, completely lo- lacks any notion of causality. And that's dooms it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we have to somehow give it some kind of notion of causality. Um, there's a lot of push from the more cognitive science crowd saying, we have to look at developmental learning. We have to look at how babies learn. We have to look at intuitive physics, all these things we know about physics. And as somebody kind of quipped, we we, we also have to teach machines intuitive metaphysics, which means like, Objects exist. (laughs) (laughs) Causality exists.
0: (laughs) You know, these things that
1: maybe we're born with. I don't know. That that they don't have the machines don't have any of that. You know, they look at a, a group of pixels and they maybe they get 10 million examples, but they they can't necessarily learn that there are objects in the world. So there's just a lot of pieces of the puzzle that people are promoting and with different opinions of like how, how, how important they are and how close we are to uh, being able to put them all together to create general intelligence.
0: Looking at this broad field, what do you take away from it? Who's the most impressive? Is it the cognitive folks, the Gary Marcus camp, the Yann camp? <laughs> unsupervised, and there's self-supervised, there's the supervisors, yeah. and then there's the engineers who are actually building systems. You have right. sort of the Andre Karpathy at Tesla building actual, you know, it's not philosophy, it's real right. like systems that operate in the real world. What, yeah, what do you yeah. take away from all all this beautiful? I mean, variety? I mean,
1: I don't know if you know these these different views are not necessarily mutually exclusive, and I, I think people like Jan LeCun Agrees with the developmental psychology, uh, causality, intuitive, physics, etc. But he still thinks that it's learning, like end-to-end learning is the way to go.
0: Will take us perhaps all the way.
1: Yeah, and that we don't need... There's no sort of innate stuff that has to get built in. This is, you know, it's because... It's a hard problem. Uh, I, I personally, you know... I'm very sympathetic to the co- cognitive science side because that's kind of where I came in to the field. I've become more and more sort of an embodiment mm-hmm. <laughs> adherent, saying that you know, without having a body, it's going to be very hard to learn what we need to learn about the world.
0: That's definitely something I'd, lo- I'd love to talk about in a little bit, to step into the cognitive world then if you don't mind, because you've done so many interesting things, if if you look to Copycat, taking a couple of decades a step back, you, Douglas Hostadter and others have created and developed Copycat more than 30 years ago.
1: <laughs> That's painful to hear.
0: <laughs> so what is it? What is,
1: what is Copycat? It's a program that makes analogies in an idealized domain idealized world of letter strings. So as you say, 30 years ago, wow. Uh, So I started working on it when I started grad school in um, 1984. Wow. (laughs) 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 Dates me. Um, And it's based on Doug Hofstetter's ideas that about, um, that analogy is really a core aspect of thinking. Uh, I remember he, he has a really nice quote in, in in the book by by himself and Emmanuel Sander called "Surfaces and Essences." I don't know if you've seen that book, but it's it's about analogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, "Without concepts, there can be no thought, and without analogies, there can be no concepts." Mm-hmm. So the view is that analogy is not just this kind of reasoning technique where we go, you know. Uh, shoe is to foot as glove is to what, you know, these kinds of things that we have on IQ tests or whatever uh, that, but that it's much deeper. It's much more per, uh, pervasive in everything we do in every, th- our language, our, our thinking, our perception. So we, so he had a view that was a very active perception idea. So the idea was that um, instead of having kind of what, what, a passive Uh, network in which you have input that's being processed through these feed-forward layers and then there's an output at the end, that perception is really a, a dynamic process, you know, where like our eyes are moving around and they're getting information and that information is feeding back to what we look at next, influences what we look at next and how we look at it. And so Copycat was trying to do that kind of simulate that kind of idea where you have these um, agents. It's kind of an agent-based system. And mm-hmm. you have these agents that are picking things to look at and deciding whether they were interesting or not, mm-hmm. and whether they should be looked at more. And, and that would influence other agents.
0: Now how do they interact? The so
1: they interacted through this global kind of what we call the workspace. Mm-hmm. So it was actually inspired by the old... Blackboard systems, where you would have agents that post information on a blackboard—a common blackboard. Mm-hmm. This is like old, very old-fashioned AI. Is
0: that? Is that? Are we talking about like in physical space? Is this a computer program? It's a computer you, program. So yeah. agents posting concepts on a blackboard, kind of. Yeah,
1: thing. we called it a workspace, and it—it—it—it—it's it, the workspace is a data structure. The agents are little pieces of code that. You could think of them as detect little detectors or little filters that mm-hmm. say, "I'm going to pick this place to look, and I'm going to look for a certain thing. And is this the thing I, I think is important? Is it there? So it's almost like you know, a convolution in a way, yeah. except a little bit uh, more general, and saying, and then highlighting it on the on the in the workspace
0: what well, what well, what's in, once it's in the workspace how do the things that are highlighted relate to each other like what's is it? So
1: the, there's different kinds of agents that can build connections between mm-hmm. different things so so just to give you a concrete example what copycat did was it it made analogies between strings of letters so here's an example abc changes to abd what does ijk change to mm-hmm and the program had some prior knowledge about the alphabet it knew the sequence of the alphabet uh it, it you know had a concept of letter of successor of letter it had concepts of sameness so it had some innate things programmed in but then it could do things like say discover that abc is a group of letters in succession
0: mm.
1: and then it some, an agent can mark that.
0: So the idea that there could be a sequence of letters is that a new concept that's formed, or that's a concept that's that's uh, a innate? concept
1: that's innate.
0: Sort of, can you form new concepts, or are all no, concepts innate?
1: So in this program, all the concepts of the program were innate. Right. So because because we weren't, I mean, obviously that limits it quite a quite a bit. But what we were trying to do is say, suppose you have some innate concepts, how do you flexibly apply them to new situations? Right. And how do you make analogies?
0: Let, let's step back for a second. So I really like that quote uh, that you said, without concepts, there can be no thought, and without analogies, there can be no concepts. In a in a Santa Fe presentation, you said that it should be one of the mantras of AI. Yes, And that you also yourself said uh, how to form and fluidly use concept is the most important open problem in AI. Yes. How to form and fluidly use concepts is the most important open problem in AI. So let's, uh, what is a concept and what is an analogy?
1: A concept is in some sense a a fundamental unit of thought. So say we have a, a concept uh, of uh, a dog, okay? And a concept is embedded in a a whole space of concepts so that there's certain concepts that are closer to it or farther away from it.
0: Are these concepts, are they really like fundamental, like we mentioned innate, almost like axiomatic, like very basic, and then there's other stuff built on top of it? Or does this include everything... Is are there complicated? Like
1: you can certainly have form new concepts,
0: right? I guess that's the question I'm asking. Yeah, can you form new concepts that are uh, combina- complex combinations of other concepts?
1: Yes, absolutely, and that's kind of what we we do in yeah. learning.
0: And um, then, what's the role of analogies in that?
1: So, analogy structure? is when you recognize that one situation. Is essentially the same as another situation. And essentially is kind of the key word there, because it's not the same. So if I say, um, last week I did a podcast interview mm-hmm. in actually like three days ago mm-hmm. <laughs> in Washington, DC. And that situation was very similar to this situation, although it wasn't exactly the same. You know, it was a different person yeah. sitting across from me. We had different kinds of microphones. Uh, the questions were different. The building was different. Uh, there's all kinds of different things, but really it was analogous. Mm-hmm. Um, or I can say, so, so, so bo- doing a podcast interview, that's kind of a concept. It's a new yes, concept. concept. You know, I uh, never had that concept before. <laughs> <laughs> this year, essentially, yeah. I mean, uh, and and I can make an analogy with it, like being interviewed for a news article in a newspaper, and I can say, well, you kind of play the same role that mm-hmm. the the newspaper reporter played. It's not exactly the same because mm-hmm. maybe they actually emailed me some written questions rather than talking. And the writing, the written questions uh, play the, you know, are analogous to your spoken questions, and you know, there's there's just all kinds of. And this somehow
0: probably connects to conversations you have over Thanksgiving dinner, just general conversations. You can, there's like a thread you can probably take that just stretches out in all aspects of life that connect to this podcast. I mean, sure, conversations between humans.
1: Sure, and if, and if um, I go and tell a friend of mine about this podcast interview, my friend might say, oh, the same thing happened to me. You know, let's say, you know, you ask me some really hard question and I have trouble answering it. My friend could say, the same thing happened to me, but it was like, it wasn't a podcast interview. It wasn't, uh, uh, it was a completely different situation. And yet, my friend is seeing essentially this, the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. we say that very fluidly. The same thing happened to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, or. the same thing. Right. But we
1: don't even say that, right? right. We just right. say it the same. Imply thing. it, yes. Yeah. And the view that kind of went, went into, say, copycat that that whole thing is that 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 act of saying the same thing happened to me is making an analogy, and in some sense, that's what's underlies all of our concepts.
0: Why do you think analogy making that you're describing is so fundamental to cognition? Like it seems like it's the main element action of what we think of as cognition.
1: Yeah. So it can be argued that all of this generalization we do of concepts and recognizing concepts in different situations Um is done by analogy that that's every time I'm recognizing that say you're a person that's by analogy because I have this concept of what person is and I'm applying it to you and uh, every time I recognize a new situation like one of the things I talked about in the book was the, the the concept of walking a dog mm-hmm. that that's actually making an analogy because all of that you know the details are very different.
0: So 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 reasoning could be reduced down to sensory analogy making. So all the things we think of as like uh, yeah, like you said, perception. So what's perception is taking raw sensory input and it somehow integrating into our, our our understanding of the world, updating the understanding, and all of that. As just this giant mess of analogies that are being made.
1: I think so, yeah.
0: If you could just linger on it a little bit, like what what do you think it takes to engineer a process like that for us in our artificial systems?
1: We need to understand better, I think, how how we do it, how humans do it. And it comes down to internal models, I think. You know, people talk a lot about mental models, that concepts are mental models, that I I can, in my head, I can do a simulation Mm -hmm. of a situation, like walking a dog. And that, there's some work in psychology that promotes this idea that all of concepts are really mental simulations, that whenever you encounter a concept or situation in the world, or you read about it, or whatever, you do some kind of mental simulation mm-hmm. that allows you to predict what's going to happen, to to develop expectations of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of structure I think we need is that kind of mental model that, and the in, in our brains somehow these mental models are very much interconnected.
0: Again, so a lot of stuff we're talking about are essentially open problems, right? So if I ask a question, I don't mean that you would know the answer, only just hypothesizing. But how big do you think is the, the, the network graph data structure of concepts that's in our head? Like if we're trying to build that ourselves, like... It's, we take it, that's one of the things we take for granted, we think, I mean, that's why we take common sense for granted. We think common sense is trivial, but how big of a th- thing of concepts is un- that underlies what we think of as common sense, for example?
1: Yeah, I don't know. And I, I'm not, I don't even know what units to measure it in. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> you say how big that's is beautifully it? beautifully <laughs> put, right? But, uh... but, you know, we have, uh, you know, it's really hard to know. We have... Uh, what, 100 billion neurons or something, I don't know. Uh, And they're connected via trillions of synapses. And there's all this chemical processing going on. There's just a lot of capacity for (laughs) stuff. And their information's encoded in different ways in the brain. It's encoded in uh, chemical interactions. It's encoded in electric, like, firing and firing rates. and, And nobody really knows how it's encoded. But it just seems like there's a huge amount of capacity, so I think it's it's huge, it's just enormous, and it's amazing how much stuff we know,
0: yeah and, and if <laughs> but we know and not just know like facts, but it's all integrated into this thing that we can make analogies with. Yes, there's a dream of semantic web, and there's there's a lot of dreams from expert systems of building giant knowledge bases. Do you see a hope for these kinds of approaches of building of converting Wikipedia into something that could be used in analogy making?
1: Uh sure. And I think people have have made some progress along those lines. I mean, people have been working on this for a long time. But the problem is and this I think was is is the problem of common sense. Like people have been trying to get these common sense networks. Here at MIT there's this concept net project, right? But the problem is that, as I said, most of the knowledge that we have is invisible to us. It's not in Wikipedia. (laughs) It's very basic things about, you know, intuitive physics, intuitive psychology, intuitive metaphysics, all that stuff.
0: If you were to create a website that's described, Intuitive physics, intuitive psychology. Would it be bigger or smaller than Wikipedia? What do you think?
1: I guess describe to whom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but... that's it, No,
0: that's it, re- really good. I, you it's know. exactly right, yeah.
1: That's a hard question because, you know, how do you represent that knowledge is the question, right? right. I can certainly write down F equals MA and uh, Newton's laws and a lot of physics can be deduced from that. Uh, uh uh but that's probably not the best representation of that knowledge for for doing uh the kinds of reasoning we want a machine to do so so i don't know it's 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 impossible to say now <laughs> and I, I, people you know the, the projects like there's a famous the famous psych project, psych project right that yeah. D- 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 Douglas Lenat did that was that's trying still going I think it's still going. And yeah. it's the, the idea was to try and encode all of common sense knowledge, including all this invisible knowledge, in some kind of logical representation. And it just never, I think, could do any of the things that he was hoping it could do. Because that's just the wrong approach.
0: Of course, that's what they always say, you know. and And, and then the history books will say, well, the Psych Project finally found a breakthrough in uh, 2058 or something. And it, it, you know, we're so much progress has been made in just a few decades that, yeah, uh, it could be. Who knows what the next breakthroughs will be? It could be. It's certainly a compelling notion what the Psych Project stands for.
1: I think Lennon was one of the earliest people to say common sense is what it's we important. need. That's what we need. All this like expert system stuff that is not going to get you to ai you need common sense and he basically gave up his whole uh academic career to to go pursue that and i i totally admire that but i i think that the approach itself will not in 2020 or 2040 <laughs> or wherever yeah. <laughs> what do you think is successful? wrong with the approach
0: what kind of approach would might be successful well Again, that, nobody knows the answer, right? If I knew
1: that, you know, yeah. w- one of my talks, uh, one of the people in the audience, this is a public lecture, one of the people in the audience said, what AI companies are you investing in? <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> Investment well, I'm,
0: advice, okay. I'm
1: a college professor for one okay. thing, <laughs> so I don't have a lot of extra funds to invest, but also like no one knows what's going to work in AI, right? That's, That's the problem.
0: Let me ask another impossible question in case you have a sense. In terms of data structures that will store this kind of information, do you think they've been invented yet, both in hardware and software? Or is something else needs to be, are we totally, you know.
1: I think something else has to be invented. i That's my guess.
0: Is the breakthroughs that's most promising, would that be in hardware or in software? Do you well, think we can get far with the current computers? Or do we need to uh, do something that you... S- I
1: see what you're saying. I don't know if Turing computation is going to be sufficient. Probably, sufficient. I would guess it will. Uh, I, don't, I don't see any reason why we need anything else. But so, so in that sense, we have invented the hardware we need, but we just need to make it faster and bigger. <laughs> and we need to figure out the right algorithms and, and the right uh, s- sort of architecture.
0: Turing... It, that's a very mathematical notion. When we try have to build intelligence, it's an, now an engineering notion where you throw all that stuff.
1: Well, I guess I guess it, it is a it is a question. That there, there, people have brought up this question, you know, and, and when you asked about like, is our current hardware will will our current hardware work? Well, t- Turing computation says that like our current hardware is in principle. A Turing machine, right? Yes. It, it, so all we have to do is make it faster and bigger. But there have been people like Roger Penrose, if you might remember, that he said Turing machines cannot produce intelligence because intelligence requires continuous valued numbers. I mean, that was sort of my reading of his yeah. <laughs> argument uh, and quantum mechanics and right. what, what else, whatever, you know. But I don't see any evidence for that, that we need new computation paradigms. But I don't know if we're, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to scale up our current approaches to programming these computers.
0: What is your hope for approaches like copycat or other cognitive architectures? I've talked to the creator of SOAR, for example. I've used ACT-R myself. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah, I am. Uh, what do you what do you think is what's your hope of approaches like that in helping develop uh, systems of greater and greater intelligence in the in the coming
1: decades? Well, that's what I'm working on now is trying to take some of those ideas and extending it. So I think there's some really promising approaches that are going on now uh, that have to do with more active, generative. Models. So this is the idea of this simulation in your head of a concept. When you, if you want to, when you're perceiving a new a new situation, you have some simulations in your head. Those are generative models. They're generating your expectations. They're generating predictions.
0: So that's part of a perception. You have a mental model that generates a prediction, then you compare it with. Yeah. And then the difference, and 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 you also
1: that that generative model is telling you where to look and what to look at and what to pay attention to, and it I think it affects your perception. It's not that just you compare it with your perception; it it becomes your perception in a way. It 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 it's kind of a mixture of of the bottom up information coming from the world and your top down model being imposed on the world is what becomes your perception.
0: So your hope is something like that can Im- improve perception systems and that they can understand things better. Yes. Understand things. Yes. What's the what's the step, what's the analogy making step there?
1: Well, there the 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 idea is that you have this pretty complicated conceptual space. Mm-hmm. You know, you can talk about a semantic network or something like that. With these different kinds of concept models in your brain that are connected, mm-hmm. so so let's let's take the example of walking a dog. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about that, okay. Let's see. I see see someone out on the street walking a cat. Mm-hmm. Some people walk their cats. I guess. Yes. Seems like a bad idea, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So my model, my you know, there's connections between my model of a dog and a model of a cat, mm-hmm. and I can immediately see the analogy of uh, that those are analogous situations, but I can also see the differences and that tells me what to expect. So uh, also, you know, I have a, a new situation. So another example with the walking the dog thing is sometimes people, I see people riding their bikes with a leash, holding a leash and the dog's running alongside. Okay. So I know that the, I recognize that as kind of a dog walking situation, mm-hmm. even though the pe- person's not walking, right, and the dog's not walking, yeah. because I I have the, these these models that say, okay, riding a bike is sort of similar to walking, or it's connected, it's a means of transportation. But I, because they have their dog there, I assume they're not going to work, but they're going out for exercise, and you know the, these analogies help me to figure out kind of what's going on, what's likely.
0: But sort of these analogies are very human interpretable. Mm-hmm. So that's that kind of space. And then you look at something like uh, the current deep learning approaches, they kind of help you to take raw sensory information and to sort of automatically build up hierarchies of of, of well, you can even call them concepts. They're just not human interpretable concepts. What What's your... What's the link here? Do you, do you hope uh, it, it's sort of the hybrid system question? How do you think the two can start to meet each other? What's the value of learning in this systems of forming, of analogy making?
1: The The, the goal of, I, you know, the original goal of deep learning in, in at least visual perception was that you would get the system to learn to extract features that at these different levels of complexity. So maybe edge detection, Mm -hmm. and that would lead into learning, you know, simple combinations of edges and then more complex shapes and then whole objects or faces. Uh, And this was based on the, the ideas of the neuroscientists Hubel and Weasel who had seen Mm-hmm. Laid out this kind of structure in brain, um, and I think that is that's right to some extent. Of course, people have come found that the whole story is a little more complex than that, and yeah. the brain, of course, always is. And there's a lot of feedback, and um, so I see that as as absolutely a a, a good brain inspired approach to some aspects of perception but one thing that it's lacking for example is all of that feedback which is extremely important
0: the interactive element that you mentioned uh, uh
1: the expectation right the, the, the conceptual the, level
0: going back and forth with the with the expectation and the perception and yeah. just going back and forth
1: so right so that is extremely important and you know one thing about Deep neural networks is that in a given situation, like you know, they, they they're trained right. They get these weights mm-hmm. and everything. But then now I give them a new uh, a new image, let's say. Yes. They treat every part of the image in the same way. You know, they apply the same filters at each layer to all parts of the image. Mm-hmm. There's no feedback to say like, oh, this part of the image is irrelevant. Right. I shouldn't care about this part of the image, or, or this part of the image is the most important part. And that's kind of what we humans are able to do because we have these conceptual expectations.
0: So there's, a, by the way, a little bit of work in that. There's certainly a lot more in atten- what's under the called attention, attention in natural language processing now. It's an, it's a, and it, that's exceptionally powerful. And, and it's a very just as you say is a really powerful idea. But again, in sort of machine learning, it all kind of operates in an automated way. That's not human. Well, it's interpret-
1: not it's not also okay. So that yeah. Right. It's not dynamic. I mean, in the sense that as a perception of a new example is being processed, it, those attention weights don't change.
0: Right. So I mean there's a there's a kind of notion that there's not a memory. So you're not aggregating the idea of like this mental model. Yes. I mean, that seems to be a fundamental idea. There's not a really powerful, I mean, there's some stuff with memory, but there's not a powerful way to represent the world in some sort of way that's deeper than, I mean, it's it's so difficult because, uh, you know, neural networks do represent the world they do have a mental model right <laughs> but it just seems to be shallow like like it's it's hard to it's it's hard to criticize them at the fundamental level uh, to me at least it's easy to it's uh it's easy to criticize them well look like exactly what you're saying mental models sort of almost from a psycho- put a psychology hat on say Look, these networks are clearly not able to achieve what we humans do with forming mental models, the analogy making, so on. But that doesn't mean that they fundamentally cannot do that. Like you can't. It's very difficult to say that. I mean, at least to me. Do you have a notion that the learning approaches really? I mean, they're going to not not only are they limited today, but they will forever be limited in being able to construct uh, such mental models.
1: I think the idea of the dynamic perception is key here. The idea that moving your eyes around and getting feedback. And that's something that, you know, there's been some models like that. There's certainly recurrent neural networks that operate over several time steps. and But the problem is that the, the actual, the recurrence is... You know, basically the the feedback is to, at the next time step is the entire um, hidden state yes. of the network, which which is uh, and it turns out that it, that's that doesn't work very well.
0: But see, yeah, the the thing I'm saying is, mathematically speaking, it has the information in that recurrence to capture everything. It just doesn't seem to work.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. So,
0: like my, you know, it's like um, it's the same touring machine question, right? Uh, yeah, maybe f- theoretically, it, a computer's anything that's storing uh, a universal touring machine can can be intelligent, but practically, the architecture might be have be very specific kind of architecture to be able to create it. So, it's just I, I guess it sort of asks almost the same question again: is how big of a role? do you think deep learning needs, will play or needs to play in this, in perception?
1: I think that deep learning as it's currently, um, as it currently exists, you know, will play, that kind of thing will play some role. And, uh, but I think that there's a lot more going on in perception, but who knows, you know, the, the definition of deep learning I mean,
0: it, well, it's pretty problem. broad.
1: It's kind of an umbrella for a so lot. So what, what I
0: things. mean is purely sort of neural networks. Yeah,
1: like, and a forward neural networks
0: essentially. Yeah. Or it, there could be recurrence, but yeah. Sometimes it feels like, for so I talked to Gary Marcus, it feels like the criticism of deep learning is kind of like us birds criticizing airplanes for not flying well, or, or that they're not really flying. Do you think? Deep learning. Do you think it could go all the way, like Yann LeCun thinks? Do you think that, uh, yeah, the the brute force <laughs> learning approach can go all the way?
1: I don't think so. No, I mean, I I think it's an open question, but uh, I, I I tend to be on the innateness side that there has that there's some things that we we've been evolved to mm. uh, be able to learn. And that learning just can't happen without them. So, so one example here's here's an example I had in the book that that I think is is useful to me at least in thinking about this. So, um, th- this has to do with the Deep Mind's Atari game playing program, mm-hmm. okay? And it learned to play these Atari video games just by um, getting input from the pixels of the screen and um, it learned to play uh, the game Breakout, um, thousand percent better than humans. Okay, mm. that was one of their results, and it was great. And and it learned this thing where it tunneled through the side of the mm. uh, of the bricks in the Breakout game, and the ball could bounce off the ceiling and then just wipe out bricks. Yeah. Okay, so uh, there was a group who did an experiment where they. Um, took the paddle, you know, that you move with the joystick and moved it up two pixels or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then they they looked at um, a deep uh, Q-learning system that had been trained on breakout and said, could it now transfer its learning to this new version of the game? Of course, a human could, but, mm-hmm. and it couldn't. Maybe that's not surprising, but I guess the point is it hadn't learned the concept of a paddle. It hadn't learned that. It hadn't learned the concept of a ball or yeah. the concept of tunneling. It was learning something, you know, we, call, we looking at it, kind of anthropomorphized it and said, oh, it here's what it's doing and yes. the way we describe it. But it actually didn't learn those concepts. And so because it didn't learn those concepts, it couldn't make this transfer.
0: Yeah, so that's a, a beautiful statement. But at the same time, by moving the paddle, we also anthropomorphize flaws To inject into the system that will then flip how impressed we are by it. What I mean by that is, uh, to me, the Atari games were to me deeply impressive that that was possible at all. So, like, I have to first pause on that, and people should look at that, just like the game of Go, which is fundamentally different to me than um, than what Deep Blue did, even though there's still Monte Carlo, there's still tree search. It's just everything DeepMind has done in terms of learning, however limited it is, is still deeply surprising to me. Yeah,
1: I, I'm not. I'm not trying to say that what they did wasn't impressive. I think it was incredibly impressive
0: to me. It's interesting. Is moving the the board just another level, another thing that needs to be learned? So, like, we've been able to maybe, maybe been able to through the current neural networks learn very basic concepts that are not enough to do this general reasoning, and then maybe with more data. I mean, the data the, you know the interesting thing about the examples that you talk about and beautifully is they it's often flaws of the data.
1: Well, that's the question. I mean right. I, I I think that is the key question, whether it's a flaw of the data or not
0: or the mechanism, because right. because all, yeah. the, the
1: reason I brought up this example was because you were asking, do I think that you know learning from data could go all the way? Yes, and that this was why I brought up the the example because I think um and this was is not at all to to take away from the impressive work that they did, but it's to say that when we look at what these systems learn. Do they learn the human, the things that we humans consider to be the relevant concepts? And in that example, it didn't. Sure, if you train it on uh, moving, you know, the paddle being in different places, maybe it could deal with, maybe it would learn that concept. I'm not totally sure. But the question is, you know, scaling that up to more complicated worlds uh, to what extent could a machine that only gets this very raw data learn to divide up the world into relevant concepts? And I don't know the answer, but I would bet that th- that without some innate notion yes. that it can't do it.
0: Yeah. 10 years ago, I 100% agree with you as the most experts in AI system, but now I have a one per, like I have a glimmer of hope. <laughs> okay, I mean <laughs> you know, that's and, fair enough. And, and I think I think that's what deep learning did in the community is no no, no I still if I had to bet all my money it's a hundred percent deep learning will not take us all the way but there's still a uh, there it's still I was so personally sort of surprised mm-hmm. by the Atari games by Go by uh, the, by the power of self play of just yeah. game playing against each that. I was like many other times, just humbled of how little I know about what's possible. In uh, yeah, I approaches. think fair
1: enough. Self play is amazingly powerful, and you know that's that goes way back to right. Arthur Samuel, right, yeah. with his checker playing program, yeah. and that which was brilliant and surprising that it did that's so fine. well.
0: So just for fun, let me uh, ask you on the topic of autonomous vehicles. It's the area that um, that I work at least these days most closely on, and it's also area that I think is a good example that you use is sort of uh, an example of things we as humans don't always realize how hard it is to do. It's like the the constant trend in AI, but the different problems that we think are easy when we first try them. And then we realize how hard it is. Okay, so why you've talked about this autonomous driving being a difficult problem, more difficult than we realize. Humans give it credit for. Why is it so difficult? What are the most difficult parts in your view?
1: I think it's difficult because of the world is so open-ended as to what, what kinds of things can happen. So you have sort of what normally happens, which is just you drive along and nothing nothing surprising happens. And autonomous vehicles can do the ones we have now, evidently, can do really well on most normal situations as long as long as you know the weather is reasonably good and everything. Um, but if some we have this notion of edge case or or you know things in the tail of the distribution, Mm -hmm. called the long tail problem, which says that there's so many possible things that can happen that was not in the training data of the machine that it won't be able to handle it because it doesn't have common sense.
0: Right. It's the old, the paddle moved...
1: Yeah, it's the paddle moved problem, (laughs) right. And so my understanding, and you probably are more of an expert than I am on this, is that current self-driving car vision systems have problems with obstacles, meaning that they don't know which obstacles, which quote unquote obstacles they should stop for and which ones they shouldn't stop for. Mm. And so a lot of times I read that they tend to slam on the brakes quite a bit and the most common accidents with self-driving cars are people rear-ending them, because they were surprised; they weren't expecting the machine, the the car, to stop.
0: Yeah, so the, there's there's a lot of interesting questions there. Uh, whether, because because you mentioned kind of two things, so so one is the the problem of perception of understanding, of interpreting the objects that are detected. Right, correctly, right, and the other one is more like the the policy the the action that you take how you respond to it, so a lot of the cars braking is a kind of notion of to clarify, there's a lot of different kind of things that are people calling autonomous vehicles, but a lot the l four vehicles with a safety driver are the ones like Waymo and Cruise and all those companies. they tend to be very conservative and cautious. So they tend to be very, very afraid of hurting anything or anyone and getting in any kind of accidents. So their policy is very kind of that it, that results in being exceptionally responsive to anything that could possibly be an obstacle, right?
1: Right. Which 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 the human drivers around it it's unpredict it, it behaves unpredictably
0: yeah that 's not a very human thing to do caution that 's yeah. not the thing we 're good at, especially in driving we 're <laughs> in a hurry often angry and et cetera especially in boston so and then there's sort of another. and and a lot of times that's machine learning is not a huge part of that it's It's becoming more and more unclear to me how much even you know uh, sort of speaking to public information because a a lot of companies say they're doing deep learning and machine learning just to attract good candidates. Uh, the reality is in many cases, it's still not a huge part of the, of the perception. There's there's LIDAR and there's other sensors that are much more reliable for obstacle detection. And then there's Tesla approach, which is vision only. Mm -hmm. And there's I I think a few companies doing that, but Tesla most sort of famously pushing that forward.
1: And that's because the LiDAR is too expensive, right?
0: Well, I I mean, yes, but I would say if you were to for free give to every Tesla vehicle, I mean, Elon Musk fundamentally believes that LiDAR is a crutch, right? Fantasy Mm -hmm. said that, that if you want to solve the problem of machine learning, LiDAR is not should not be the primary sensor. Is the belief? Okay. Uh, the camera contains a lot more information. Mm-hmm. So if so, if you want to learn, you want that information. But if you want to not to hit obstacles, <laughs> you want lidar. Right. It's sort of it's a, this weird trade off because, uh, yeah, it sort of what Tesla vehicles have a lot of, which is really the thing, the pri the. The fallback, the primary fallback sensor is radar, which is a very crude version of LIDAR. It's, it's a good detector of obstacles, except when those things are standing, right? The stopped vehicles. Right, that's why
1: it had problems with crashing into stopped fire trucks.
0: Stop fire trucks, right. <laughs> so the the hope there is that the vision sensor would somehow catch that and infer. And, and so there's a lot of problems with perception. I... Uh, they are doing actually some incredible stuff in the, almost like an active learning space where it's constantly taking edge cases and pulling back in. There's this da- data pipeline. Another aspect that is really important that people are studying now is called multitask learning, which is sort of breaking p- apart this problem, whatever the problem is, in this case driving, into dozens or hundreds of sp- Little problems that you can turn into learning problems. So this giant pipeline, you know, it's kind of interesting. I've I've been skeptical from the very beginning, but become less and less skeptical over time. How much of driving can be learned? I still think it's much farther than than the the CEO of the, that particular company thinks it will be. But it it is constantly surprising that through good engineering and data collection and a- active selection of data how you can attack that long tail. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting open question that you're absolutely right there's a much longer tail and all these edge cases that we don't think about but it's this it's a fascinating question that applies to natural language and all spaces how big how how big is that long tail. Right. And I mean n- not to linger on the point but what's your sense in driving in these practical problems of the human experience can it be learned so the current what are your thoughts of sort of Elon Musk thought let's forget the thing that he says it'll be solved in a year but can it be solved in, in in a reasonable timeline or do fundamentally other methods need to be invented
1: so i i don't I think that ultimately driving so so it's a trade-off in a way. Uh, you know, being able to drive and deal with any situation that comes up does require kind of full human intelligence. And even in humans aren't <laughs> intelligent enough to do it, because humans I mean, most human accidents are are because the human wasn't paying attention or the humans drunk or whatever. And
0: not because they weren't intelligent enough. And
1: not because they weren't intelligent enough, okay. right. Uh, whereas the accidents with autonomous vehicles is because they weren't intelligent enough.
0: They're often. always paying attention. Yeah, they're right? always paying attention. So <laughs> so it's a,
1: it's a trade-off, you know, and I think that it's a very fair thing to say that autonomous vehicles will be ultimately safer than humans because humans are very unsafe, uh, it's kind of a low bar.
0: <laughs> but uh just like you said, the I I, I think humans got a better rap, right? Because we're really good at the common sense thing.
1: Yeah, we're great at the common sense thing. We're we're bad at the paying attention thing.
0: Paying attention thing, right?
1: Especially when we're bo- you know, driving's kind of boring and we have these phones to play with and everything. But um I think what what's gonna happen is that for many reasons, not just AI reasons, but also like legal and other reasons, that the the definition of self-driving is going to change, or autonomous is going to change. It's not going to be just, I'm going to go to sleep in the back and you just drive me anywhere. Uh, It's going to be more, certain areas are going to be instrumented to have the sensors and the mapping and all of the stuff you need for... That that the autonomous cars won't have to have full common sense, and they'll do just fine in those areas, as long as pedestrians don't mess with them too much. That's another question. (laughs) That's right. Uh, But um, I don't think we will have fully autonomous self driving in the way that like most the average person thinks of it for a very long time.
0: And just to reiterate, this is the interesting open question that I think I agree with you on, is to solve fully autonomous driving, you have to be able to engineer in common sense. Yes. I I think it's an important thing to hear and think about. I hope that's wrong, but I currently agree <laughs> agree with you that unfortunately you do have to have uh, to be more specific, sort of these deep understandings of physics and yeah. uh, of, of the way this world works, and also the human dynamics. Like you mentioned, pedestrians and cyclists are actually, that's whatever that nonverbal communication, as some people call it, there's that dynamic that uh, is also part of this common sense.
1: Right. And we're pretty, we humans are pretty good at predicting what other humans are going to do.
0: And how are our, our actions impact the behaviors of? Yeah. So, this, this this weird game theoretic dance that yeah. we're good at somehow. And we're well, the funny thing is, because I've watched countless hours of pedestrian video and talked to people, we humans are also really bad at articulating the knowledge we have. Right. Which has uh, been a huge challenge. Yes. So, You've mentioned embodied intelligence. What do you think it takes to build a system of human-level intelligence? Does it need to have a body?
1: I'm not sure, but I, I'm i coming around to that more and more.
0: <laughs> and what does it mean to be... I don't mean to keep bringing on, up Yalakun, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> He looms he, very large. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, he, he certainly has a large personality, yes. Uh, he thinks that the system needs to be grounded meaning it needs to sort of be able to interact with reality, but doesn't think it necessarily needs to have a body. So when you think so of what's
1: the difference?
0: I guess I, I want to ask when you mean body, do you mean you have to be able to play with the world? Or do you also mean like there's a body that you that you have to preserve?
1: Oh, uh, that's a good question. I haven't really thought about that, but um I think both, I would guess. Cause it's because I think you I think intelligence it's so hard to to separate it from our self our desire for self preservation our emotions our all that non-rational stuff that kind of gets in the way of logical thinking <laughs> because we the way you know if we're talking about human intelligence or human level intelligence whatever that means uh, a huge part of it is social. That, you know, we we were evolved to be social and to deal with other people. And that's just so ingrained in us um, that it's hard to separate intelligence from that. I I think, you know, AI f- for the last 70 years or however long it's been around, it, it has largely been separated. There's this idea that there's like, It's kind of very uh, Cartesian. There's this, you know, thinking thing that we're trying to create, but we don't care about all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think the other stuff is very fundamental.
0: So there's the idea that things like emotion get in the way of intelligence.
1: As opposed to being an integral part of it.
0: Integral part of it. So, I mean, I'm Russian, so romanticize the notions of emotion and suffering and all that kind of... Uh, fear of mortality, those kinds of things. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> in AI, especially sort of...
1: I- By the way, did you see that? There was this recent thing going around the internet of uh, this. So, some, I think he's a Russian or some Slavic had had mm-hmm. written this thing of, uh, sort of anti the idea of super intelligence. Mm-hmm. I forgot. Maybe he's Polish. Anyway, so he had all these arguments and one one was the argument from slavic pessimism <laughs> Which is my favorite
0: uh, do you remember what the argument is Just, it, it's it, like
1: nothing ever works yeah. <laughs> everything sucks <laughs>
0: so what what do you think is the role like that's such a fascinating idea that uh, the what we perceive as sort of the limits of human the human mind, which is emotion and uh, fear and all those kinds of things, are integral to intelligence. Could could you uh, elaborate on that? Like, what? Why is that important? Do you think for human level intelligence?
1: At least for the way the humans work, it's a big part of how it affects how we perceive the world. Mm-hmm. It affects how we make decisions about the world. It affects how we interact with other people. Um, it affects our understanding of other people. You know, for me to understand your uh, what you're going what you're likely to do, I need mm-hmm. to have kind of a theory of mind, and that's very much a theory of emotion. <laughs> and motivations and goals and uh and to understand that i you know we have the, the the this whole system of you know mirror neurons and we you know i sort of understand your motivations through sort of simulating it myself so you know it's not something that i can prove that's necessary but it's seems very likely.
0: So, uh, okay. You've written the op-ed in the New York Times titled, We Shouldn't Be Scared by Superintelligent AI. And it criticized a little bit Stuart Russell and Nick Bostrom. Can you try to summarize that article's key ideas?
1: So it was spurred by an earlier New York Times op-ed by Stuart Russell, which was summarizing his book, Uh, called Human Compatible. And the article was saying, you know, if if we have super intelligent AI, we need to have its values aligned with our values and it has to learn about what we really want. And he gave this example, what if we have a super intelligent AI and we give it the problem of solving climate change and it decides that the best way to lower the carbon in the atmosphere is to kill all the humans. Right. Okay. So to me, that just made no sense at all because a super intelligent AI, first of all, thinking, what, trying to figure out what, what super intelligence means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't, it seems that something that's super intelligent can't just be intelligent along this one dimension of, okay, I'm going to figure out all the steps, the best optimal path to solving climate change and not be intelligent enough to figure out that humans don't want to be killed, (laughs) that you could get to one without having the other. And, you know, Bostrom in his book talks about the orthogonality hypothesis where he says he thinks that a system's, um, I can't remember exactly what it is, but like a system's goals and its... uh, values don't have to be aligned there's some right. orthogonality right. there which yeah. didn't make any sense to me
0: So you're saying in any system that's sufficiently not even super intelligent but as it approaches greater and greater intelligence there's a holistic nature that will sort of attention that will naturally emerge yes. that prevents it from sort of any one dimension running away
1: Yeah Yeah exactly so so you know Bostrom had this example of the the super intelligent AI that that makes that turns the world into paper clips because it's its job is to make paper clips or something. And that just as a thought experiment didn't make any sense to me.
0: <laughs> well, as a thought experiment or, or as a thing that could possibly be realized?
1: Either. So so I think that, you know, what my op-ed was trying to do was say that that intelligence is more complex than these people are presenting it. That it's not like it's not so separable the rationality, the the values, the emotions, the all of that that it's the the view that you could separate all these dimensions and build yes. a machine that has one of these dimensions and it's super intelligent in one dimension, but it doesn't have any of the other dimensions. That's what I was uh trying to criticize that, that that I don't believe that.
0: So can I read a, a few sentences from Yoshio uh, Benja, who is always super eloquent? So he writes, I have the same impression as Melanie that our cognitive biases are linked with our ability to learn to solve many problems. They may also be a limiting factor for AI. However, this is a may in quotes. Things may also turn out differently and there's a lot of uncertainty about the capabilities of future machines. But more importantly for me, the value alignment problem is a problem well before we reach some hypothetical superintelligence. It is already posing a problem in the form of super powerful companies whose objective function may not be sufficiently aligned with humanity's general well-being, creating all kinds of harmful side effects. So he goes on to argue that at you know, the orthogonality and those kinds of things, the concerns of just aligning values with the capabilities of the system is something that might come long before we reach anything like superintelligence. So your criticism is kind of really nice to saying this idea of, super-intelligent systems seem to be dismissing fundamental parts of what intelligence would take. And then Yoshio kind of says, yes, but if we look at systems that are much less intelligent, there might be these same kinds of problems that emerge.
1: Sure. But I guess the example that he gives there of these corporations, that's people, right? Those are people's values. I mean, we're talking about people the corporations are, their values are the values of the people who run those corporations.
0: But the idea is the algorithm, that's right. So the, the fundamental person, the, the fundamental element of what does the bad thing is a human being. Yeah. But the the algorithm kind of controls the behavior of this mass of human beings.
1: Which, which algorithm?
0: uh what for for a company that's the uh, so for example if it's advertisement driven company that recommends certain things uh, and encourages engagement so sort of it gets money by encouraging engagement and therefore the company more and more it's like the cycle that builds an algorithm right. that enforces more engagement and made perhaps more division in the culture and so on so on
1: i guess and, i guess the the question here is sort of who has the agency it, it, so so you might say okay. for instance we don't want our algorithms to be racist right and facial recognition you know some people have criticized some facial recognition systems as being racist because they're not as um good on darker skin than lighter skin that's right okay but the agency there the the the, the actual alg- facial recognition algorithm isn't what has the agency it's it's not the racist thing right it's it's the, the the I don't know the the combination of the training data the cameras being used I whatever but my understanding of and, and I say I told, I agree with Bengio there that he you know I think there are these value issues with our use of algorithms but my understanding of what uh Russell's argument was is more that the algorithm the machine itself has the agency now it's the thing that's making the decisions and it's the thing that has what we would call values. Yes. So whether that's just a matter of degree, you know, it's hard it's hard to say, right? Because but I would say that's sort of qualitatively different than a f- face recognition neural yes. network.
0: And To broadly linger on that point, if you look at Elon Musk or Stuart Russell or Bostrom, people who are worried about existential risks of AI, however far into the future, their argument goes is it eventually happens. We don't know how far, but it eventually happens. Do you share any of those concerns and what kind of concerns in general do you have about AI that approach anything like existential threat to humanity?
1: So I would say, yes, it's possible, but I think there's a lot more closer in existential threats to humanity. Because you
0: said like a hundred years for so your times it's
1: more more than a hundred years, more
0: than a hundred years, and so maybe, that means maybe
1: even more than five hundred years. I don't I don't know. I mean, it's
0: so the existential threats are so far out that the future. I mean, there'll be a million different technologies that we can't even predict now that will fundamentally change the nature of our behavior, reality, society, and so on before then. I
1: think so. I think so. And, you know, we have so many other pressing existential threats going on. Nuclear weapons, even. Nuclear weapons, climate problems, you know, poverty, possible pandemics. That you can go on and on, and I think though you know worrying about existential threat from AI is is, is not the best priority for what we should be worried about. That that's kind of my view because we're so far away. But I, you know I I'm not I'm not necessarily criticizing Russell or or or. or or whoever for th- worrying about that. and i'm I think it's some some people should be worried about it. it's It's certainly fine, but i i I was more sort of getting at their their view of intelli- what intelligence is. Mm-hmm. So I was more focusing on like their view of the super intelligence than uh, the, the just the fact of them worrying. And the the title of the article was was written by the the, the New York Times editors. I wouldn't have called it that.
0: <laughs> we shouldn't be scared by superintelligence. No, if you wrote it, it'd be like we should redefine what you mean by superintelligence. I actually
1: said said uh, you know something like superintelligence is not uh, is is not a sort of coherent idea. but that doesn't that's not like something the New York Times would put in
0: (laughs) and the the follow-up argument that Yoshio makes also not argument but a statement and I've heard him say it before and I think I I agree he's kind of has a very friendly way of phrasing it as it's good for a lot of people to believe different things
1: (laughs) (laughs) he's such a nice guy yeah
0: Well. but he's it's also practically speaking like we shouldn't be like while you're Article stands like Stuart Russell does amazing work, Bostrom does a lot of amazing work, you do amazing work. And even when you disagree about the definition of superintelligence or the usefulness of even the term, it's still useful to have people that like use that term, right? And then argue. It's uh
1: sure. I, I I absolutely agree with Benjo there. And I think it's great that, you know, and it's great that the New York Times will publish all this stuff. So. <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> It's an exciting time to be here. What what do you think is a good test of intelligence? Like is is natural language ultimately a test that you find the most compelling? Like the the original or the what, you know, the, the higher levels of the Turing test kind of yeah.
1: Yeah, I I still think the original idea of the Turing test is a good uh test for intelligence. I mean, I can't think of anything better. You know, the Turing test The way that it's been carried out so far has been uh, very impoverished, if you will. But I think a real Turing test that really goes into depth, like the one that I mentioned, I talk about in the book, I talk about Ray Kurzweil and uh, Mitchell Kapoor have this bet, Mm -hmm. right, that that, in uh, 2029, I think is the date there, a, a machine will pass a Turing test, and Turing says, and they have a very specific like how many hours may, expert judges and all of that, and you know Kurzweil says yes, Kapoor says no. And we can we only have like nine more years to go to see uh, but i I you know if something a machine could pass that, I would be willing to call it intelligent,
0: of course, nobody will. They will say that's just a language model, right? If it does. So you would be comfortable. So language, a long conversation that, sh- well, yeah. You're, I mean, you're right, because I think probably to carry out that long conversation, you would literally need to have deep common sense understanding of I the world. I think
1: so. I think so.
0: And the conversation is enough to reveal that. Um,
1: I yeah, think perhaps so. Perhaps it is.
0: So another f- super fun topic of uh, complexity that you have worked on, written about. Let me ask the basic question. What is complexity?
1: So complexity is another one of those terms, (laughs) like intelligence. It's perhaps overused. But my book about complexity was about this wide area of complex systems, studying different systems in nature, in technology and society in which you have emergence, kind of like I was talking about with intelligence. You know, we have the brain, which has uh, billions of neurons, and each neuron individually could be said to be not very complex compared to the system as a whole, but the system, the the interactions of those neurons and the dynamics creates these phenomena that we call, we call intelligence or consciousness you know that are we consider to be very comp- complex. So the field of c- complexity is, is trying to find general principles that underlie all these systems that have these kinds of emergent properties.
0: And the the emergence occurs from like underlying the complex system is usually simple fundamental interactions. Yes. And the the emergence happens when there's just a lot of these things interacting. Yes. Sort of what, and then most of science to date, can you talk about what what is reductionism?
1: Well, reductionism is when you try and take a system and divide it up into its elements, whether those be cells or atoms or subatomic particles, whatever your field is, and then try and understand those elements and then try and build up an understanding of the whole system by looking at sort of the sum of all the elements.
0: So what's your sense, whether we're talking about intelligence or these kinds of interesting complex systems, is it possible to understand them in in a reductionist way, which is probably the approach of most of science today, right?
1: I don't think it's always possible to understand the things we want to understand the most. So I don't think it's possible to look at single neurons and understand what we call intelligence, you know, to look at sort of summing up. And the su- sort of the summing up is the, the issue here that we're, you know, the one example is that the human genome, right? So there was a lot of work on, excitement about sequencing the human genome because the idea would be that um, we'd be able to find genes that underlie diseases. But it turns out that, and it was a very reductionist idea. You know, we we figure out what all the, the parts are and then we would be able to figure out which parts cause which things. But it turns out that the parts don't cause the things that we're interested in. It's like the interactions, it's the networks of these parts and so that kind of reductionist approach didn't yield the the explanation that we wanted
0: what do you what do use the most beautiful complex system that you've encountered
1: The most beautiful
0: that you've been captivated by is it sort of uh, I mean for me the, is the simplest to be cellular automata
1: Oh yeah, so I was very captivated by cellular automata. And worked on cellular automata for several years.
0: Do you find it amazing or is it surprising that such simple systems, such simple rules in cellular automata can create sort of seemingly uh, unlimited complexity?
1: Yeah, that was very surprising to me.
0: How yeah. do you make sense of it? How does that make you feel? <laughs> is it just uh, ultimately humbling or is there a hope to somehow leverage this into a deeper? Uh, understanding and even able to engineer things like intelligence
1: it's definitely humbling (laughs) how humbling in that uh, also kind of awe-inspiring that it's that awe-inspiring like part of mathematics that these incredibly simple rules can produce this very beautiful complex hard to understand behavior and that that's it's mysterious, uh, you know, and, and surprising still. Um, But exciting because it does give you kind of the hope that you might be able to engineer complexity just from.
0: From simple, from the beginnings. Can you briefly say what is the Santa Fe Institute? It's history, it's culture, it's ideas, it's future. So I've, I've never, as I mentioned to you, I've never been, but it's always been this. In my mind, this mystical place where brilliant people study the edge of chaos. (laughs)
1: Yeah, exactly. So the Santa Fe Institute was started in 1984. And it was created by a group of scientists, a lot of them from Los Alamos National Lab, which is about a 40-minute drive from the Santa Fe Institute. They were mostly physicists and chemists but they were frustrated in their field because they felt so it, that their field wasn't approaching kind of big interdisciplinary questions like the kinds we've been talking about and they wanted to have a place where people from different disciplines could work on these big questions without sort of being siloed into physics, chemistry, biology, whatever so they, they started this institute. And this was people like um, uh, George Cowan, who was a chemist in the Manhattan Project, and um, Nicholas Metropolis, who um, a mathematician physicist, uh, uh, Marie Gell-Mann, a physicist. So some really big names here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ken Arrow, an economist, Nobel Prize-winning economist. And they started having these workshops. Um, And this whole enterprise kind of grew into this research institute that's itself has been kind of on the edge of chaos its whole life because (laughs) it doesn't have any, it doesn't have a significant endowment. And it's just been kind of living on whatever funding it can raise through donations and uh, grants and. However, it can you know business business associates and so on, um, but it's a great place. It's a really fun place to go think about ideas from that you wouldn't normally encounter.
0: I so, saw uh, Sean Carroll, uh, some physicists.
1: And, yeah, he's and, and on you, the external faculty. And
0: yeah. you mentioned that there's so there's some external faculty and there's people that a very active.
1: small group of resident faculty, resident faculty, maybe maybe about ten, who are there for on five year terms that can sometimes get renewed. And then they have some postdocs. And then they have this much larger on the order of a hundred external faculty or people come like me who come and visit for various periods of time.
0: So what do you think is the future of the Santa Fe Institute? Like what and if people are interested, like what what's there in terms of the public interaction or students or so on that that could be a possible interaction with the Santa Fe Institute or its ideas?
1: Yeah. So there's a, there's a few different things they do. Uh, They have a complex system summer school for graduate students and Mm -hmm. postdocs and sometimes faculty attend too. And that's a four week very intensive residential program where Mm -hmm. you go and you listen to lectures and you do projects and, People, people really like that. I mean, it's a lot of fun. They also have some specialty summer schools. There's one on computational social science. There's one on um, climate and sustainability, I think it's called. There's a few. And then they have short courses where it's just a few days on different topics. They also have an online education platform that offers a lot of different courses and tutorials from SFI faculty, including an introduction to complexity course that I taught.
0: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And there's a bunch of talks too on, uh, online from there's guest speakers and so on. They, they host a lot of, yeah,
1: they, uh, they, they, they have a uh, sort of re- technical seminars and colloquia. They all, uh, and they have a community lecture series, uh, like public lectures and they put everything on their YouTube channel. So yeah. you can, See it all.
0: Watch it. Douglas Hostadter, author of Gerald Escherbach, was your PhD advisor. He mentioned a couple of times, and collaborator. Do you have any favorite lessons or memories from your time working with him? That continues to this day, I guess. Yeah. But just even looking back throughout, throughout your time working with him.
1: So one of the things he taught me was that when you're looking at uh, a complex problem, to, to idealize it as much as possible, to try and figure out what are really, the, what is the essence of this problem? And this is how like the copycat program uh, came into being, was by say, taking analogy making and saying, how can we make this as idealized as possible but still retain really the important things we wanna study? And that's really kept, you know, been a core uh, theme of my research, I think. And I continue to try and do that. And it's really very much kind of physics uh inspired. Hofstetter was a PhD in physics. That was his background. It's like
0: and, first principles kind of thinking like you, you're reduced to the the most fundamental aspect of the problem. Yeah. So that you can focus on solving that fundamental
1: aspect. Yeah. And in, in AI, you know, that was people used to work in these micro worlds, right? Like the blocks world was very early. Important area in AI, and then that got criticized because they said, "Oh, you you know, you can't scale that to the real world." And so people started working on much like more real world like problems. But now there's been kind of a return, <laughs> even to the blocks world itself. Yeah. You know, we've seen a lot of people who are trying to work on more of these very idealized problems for things like natural language mm-hmm. and um, common sense. So that's an interesting evolution of those ideas.
0: So the perhaps the blocks world represents the fundamental challenges of the problem of intelligence more than people realize.
1: It might, yeah.
0: Is there, sort of, when you look back at your body of work and your life, you've worked in so many different fields, is there something that you're just really proud of in terms of ideas that you've gotten a chance to explore, create yourself?
1: So I am really proud of my work on the copycat, project i think it's really different from what almost everyone has done in ai i think there's a lot of ideas there to be explored and i guess one of the happiest days of my life you know aside from like the births of my children <laughs> <laughs> was the birth of copycat when it actually started to be able to make really interesting analogies and i remember that very clearly so that you, was a very was, exciting time.
0: <laughs> well, you kind of gave life yes, to an artificial system. That's right. Uh, what In terms of what people can interact, with, I saw there's like a, a, I think it's called MetaCopy. Is it, MetaCat. A, MetaCat. And uh, there's a Python 3 implementation. If people actually wanted to play around with it and actually get into it and study it and maybe integrate into whether it's with deep learning or any other kind of work they're doing, what... Um, what would you suggest they do to learn more about it and to take it forward in different kinds of directions?
1: Yeah, so there's um, Douglas Hofstadter's book uh, called Fluid Concepts and Creative Analogies. talks in great detail about copycat. I have a book called Analogy Making as Perception, which is a version of my PhD thesis on it. There's also code that's available that you can get it to run. Um, I have some links on my webpage to where people can get the code for it. And I think that that would really be the best dive way to get into in, it, to dive and, in, and,
0: yeah. And play with it. Well, Melanie, it was an honor talking to you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thanks, it's been really great.
0: Thanks for listening to this conversation with Melanie Mitchell. And thank you to our presenting sponsor, Cash App. Download it, use code LEXPODCAST, you'll get $10, and $10 will go to FIRST, a STEM education nonprofit that inspires hundreds of thousands of young minds to learn, and to dream of engineering our future. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe on YouTube, give it five stars on Apple Podcasts, support it on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter. And now, let me leave you with some words of wisdom from Douglas Hofstadter and Melanie Mitchell. Without concepts, there can be no thought, and without analogies, there can be no concepts. And Melanie adds How to form and fluidly use concepts is the most important open problem